You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to continue looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. Let me remind you of the context of the words here in, in Colossians. It points you back to verse 23, where it seems to be that the Christians in Colossae were being tempted to shift from the gospel that they had heard. That is, to shift from the person and work of Christ himself as preeminent in all things. And Paul has been reminding them of the power of this gospel, that it was through the blood of Jesus Christ that God is reconciling all things to himself. And to shift from this gospel is to drift from Christ himself as the supreme and sufficient Savior. So Paul is writing to encourage them. Now, because Paul has never met many of these Christians in the church at Colossae, he feels that he also needs to give a defense of himself. He wants to make sure that they know they can trust him, that he has given them the whole gospel, not holding anything back from them. And uh, so in this paragraph, the Colossian Christians are invited to examine Paul's calling, the shape of his ministry. And uh, so we're looking at a faithful, the blueprint for a faithful ministry here. Hear the word of the Lord through Paul, Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Reminders this morning of your goodness and faithfulness to us. And we thank you that you've given us your word like this to help lead and guide and uh, to shape, transform our lives. We pray that, Lord, this morning. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about what are the marks of a God-given ministry? What does faithful ministry look like? How will we be able to assess such a ministry? Um, Paul's words here, uh, I think, are answering those questions. It's not an exhaustive word for us, but these words are very helpful, helping us to think through 
uh, what faithful ministry is. I mentioned to you last week, Pastor John MacArthur notes eight aspects of faithful ministry. We mentioned four of them last week from verses 24 through 25. We noted uh, first the source of ministry. In verse 23, speaking of uh, the gospel, Paul says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then he repeated that phrase in verse 25, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In other words, Paul tells the Colossians that he didn't appoint himself to the ministry. He wasn't self-appointed. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. The source of ministry is God, he says. It's God who calls. It's God who appoints. It's God who gifts for ministry. It's a stewardship from God, a divine calling from God. Secondly, we noted the spirit of ministry, verse 24 of this gospel. I became a minister. Notice the first three words of verse 24. Now I rejoice. The spirit of ministry is joy. It's rejoicing. There's a a humble joy that marks all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. It comes from an understanding of what we've been singing about this morning, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. He wrote in verse 21, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Simply put, when you understand what God, that God has rescued you, redeemed you, loved you, died for you, rose for you, saves you by His perfect life and sacrificial death, gives you the hope of heaven, how can we not be among the most joyful people? And as long as you remain humble, you can remain joyful. The moment that you start wondering to yourself, I think I deserve something better. I think I deserve something more. I think I'm not sure I've been given everything in Christ. That's when you start losing your joy, church. Ministry comes with all kinds of unique and heavy burdens and temptations of discouragement and despair, but Paul is reminding us here that the attitude we're to have in staying humble is not forgetting the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's so important. Third, he says, because inevitably ministry is marked by suffering. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. We talked about last week, this does not mean, Paul is not saying there that Christ's sufferings, that what he did for us was lacking in some way, that he didn't do it all on the cross. That verse has been used um, by the Catholic Church to, to sell indulgences or uh, to collect money to purchase people's salvation out of purgatory as though something were lacking and we could purchase that. Brothers and sisters, that's not anywhere in the Bible. Christ did everything for our salvation. Amen? 
He paid it all. The New Testament emphasizes that Christ's cross alone is enough to atone for our sins completely, fully, so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven when we die. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The sufferings Paul is talking about there, though, is the continued persecution of Christ. He's reminding us that just because Jesus is dead doesn't mean that the persecution stops, the suffering stops. Since the world can't persecute Jesus because he's no longer physically here, he's in heaven, you can be sure that they will, the world will continue to wage war on Jesus' followers, on Paul, on us. It's what he means by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Suffering is necessary to build Christ's church. It's a part of it. Suffering was necessary for evangelism for Paul. Suffering was necessary for discipleship and church planting. And this is why he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because through them the gospel is advancing. Just as Jesus suffered to reconcile all things to himself, we who have been given the ministry of reconciliation we will also suffer, he says. And then fourth, we looked at the scope of ministry. Verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known or literally to fulfill the word of God, to fulfill the ministry of the word that God had given Paul, I think he's saying to preach the whole truth. Here's the scope of ministry, to preach the whole truth to all of the people in the place to which the Lord has called you, to plow deep and to trust him for the growth. And we talked about how we need to worry about the depth of ministry and God will take care of the breadth of our ministry. That brings us to the next four, beginning with Fifth, the subject of ministry. Paul describes that, verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The stewardship of ministry was this message, or this mystery, he calls it, here in verse 26. It's hard to say for sure why Paul uses this word. It may have been, again, giving us some indication of what was going on there in, uh, in, in the church in Colossae. They were being, remember, tempted to shift from the gospel, and, and there were false teachers who I think were coming in, potentially, and, and, and saying things like, you know, Christ is not enough, you've got to know more, there's, there's more that, uh, and maybe they were even using this kind of language, like there's some things that, you've got the gospel, but you know, there's some other secret things you don't know about, and you need more of these things. It's interesting to me, those kinds of claims are not un unusual at all in the history of the church, are they? I, I remember just a few years ago coming across this, um, this headline, Biblical Prophecy Claims the World Will End on September 23, 2017. Christian, here's the other part, Christian numerologist claim. And I thought, what in the world is a Christian numerologist? 
And apparently, it's someone who is an expert in finding secret codes in the Bible. Who knew, church? Secret codes. As though what is plain for us to see and understand is somehow not enough for God's people and the church. Well, several years before that, it was, it was uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. You know, remember that? I mean, there, it just comes on and on and on. It's nothing new here from Colossians and to, to our day. But this is not what Paul means by the word mystery. He may have been using that word to kind of poke the false teachers a little bit. Let me tell you about the mystery. What Paul is talking about here, this mystery is the gospel. It's the gospel. The mystery is nothing more, nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us it does not not come about uh, by some semi-secret rite or ritual, uh, but, but as we'll see in the moment, it comes by the public proclamation. There's nothing hidden here. This gospel that has been unfolding from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Christ, this gospel was concealed in the Old Testament, but now it is revealed in all of its glory through Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Then he tells us what it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's great news there. This mystery apparently is not just for a select few Christians. It's for all Christians. The benefits of it are not some kind of for spiritual elite Christians that only a few of you can obtain. That's not what he says at all. It's some kind of secret code. No, this is for everyone in Christ. He's reminding the Colossians, I've told you everything. The gospel you heard is everything. The mystery is Christ. He's the one that he's been talking about, verses 15 through 20. The one who was the creator of all things. The one who brought reconciliation to all things. Christ is this mystery now revealed. You do not need to look into any other mystery, church, any other code, but Christ, not just that, he says, but it's Christ in you, in you. The riches of this glorious mystery, that is, those who believe in Christ, here it is, Christ now lives and abides in you, not with you, not beside you, not above you, not below you. Beloved, he abides in you, he says, in you. The hope of glory. If you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, the hope of glory living in you. He says this is the message of our, this is the subject, this is the message of our ministry. I heard about a little girl who went to the doctor one time. A doctor was trying to make her feel more at ease, and so he was using subtle jokes He looked into her throat and he said, is Big Bird in there? And he looked into her ears. He said, is Mickey Mouse in there? And finally he put his, I can't even say the word, the scope on her heart. And he said, 
I think I hear Elmo in there. And the little girl spoke up. She said, Mr. Elmo is on my underwear, but Jesus is in my heart. (laughs) That is good theology, isn't it, church? That's what Paul is saying. That's our message. Maybe not the part about Elmo, but about Jesus. This mystery, he says, that the one true and living God, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, that he wants to come and live in your life and give you salvation and a certain hope for all of eternity. That's our, that's our message. What a wonderful message. Sixth, notice the strategy of ministry. How do we get this message out? What do ministers do? Verse 28, our memory verse answers this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Him we proclaim. That word, the idea is that a man who would perhaps come into a city and have a message from the king. He was a herald. He was there to herald or proclaim the message. It's a public proclamation. And so think about what has been said. Verse 25, Paul has been appointed by God to this ministry, to this task. Paul didn't choose the task. God chose God, God chose it. Verse 25, Paul didn't choose the message. God chose the message. Paul was to make the word of God fully known. Christ had given the word to Paul. Paul was to make all of that word known. Third, verse 26 through 28, Paul has not concealed anything from the Colossians. He's saying, I've not left anything out. He's living out his calling, and, and his calling is to proclaim, publicly proclaim Christ and his gospel to them. Him we proclaim. What do ministers do? Him we proclaim, he says. It's interesting. Notice the word everyone there in verse 28. It's mentioned three times. And I just recall, go, if you look back in verses 15 through 20, you remember the, the phrase all things mentioned three times there. It's not the same word, but, but the sense is that there's echoes of the all things here in the everyone. All people, he says, are to hear of Christ in whom all things have their origin and in whom in all have their very existence and reconciliation. Everyone, all things, him we proclaim, he says. He even gives us some specifics about this proclamation. He says it involves warning everyone and teaching everyone. Warning everyone. There's a, I hate to use the word negative, but that's that's the the implication. The preacher is to warn. There, There should be warning in proclamation. To warn, warn of what? To warn of of the deceits and dangers of sin, to warn of God's judgment on sinners. Some, some have said, well, we don't like 
We don't really like that, that, that it makes us feel like sinners. Beloved, what kind of pastor would I be if I made you feel comfortable in your sins today? If sin leads to death and judgment, as the Bible says. We must warn, Paul says. He uses a similar word, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 16. And there the word is translated admonish. Admonish. And in that passage, Paul is saying that all Christians have a responsibility to admonish or warn one another about sin. So it's not just the, 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 the preacher. Obviously, we do that in love. But to not do that, you understand, is not loving at all. Positively, he says that the preacher is to teach everyone. That's the second part. Teach everyone with all wisdom. And again, the context, to, to teach sound doctrine, to teach the whole gospel, to teach the whole counsel of, of God's word, not just part of it. Paul, referring to his ministry in Ephesus, and he wrote this, Acts 20, verse 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. To, to minister is to preach the whole gospel. To instruct, to teach everyone, he says, with all wisdom. Dick Lucas writes this, In the fallen world where people naturally go astray, and especially where the church is marked by unfaithfulness, such warning and teaching cannot be avoided. So what's the strategy for the minister? It's proclamation, isn't it? Preaching. It's interesting, in all that the New Testament says about the central place, the central role of preaching in the church, it's interesting how much it is denigrated, downplayed today. Oh, oh preaching, well, that's, that's, that's fine, but surely you have more of a strategy than that. You mean that, that's all we're going to do? How in the world do you possibly, uh, how are you going to, to build a church with just preaching? I mean, don't you think you ought to do, th this is a different error, you know, don't you think you ought to do something else? Maybe, maybe you need to introduce a drama skit here and there. Maybe um, you should make the lights go off and on a little bit. Flicker, different colors, maybe some fog machines or something like that. I mean, surely you're not going to rely on some outdated methodology of preaching the Bible to win sinners and disciple saints. And yet, beloved, that's exactly what the Bible calls us to do over and over and over again. Preach the word, Paul told Timothy. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I think Paul's serious. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. When Paul went to the city of Corinth, a city that was dominated by the temple of Aphrodite, uh, a, a place where there was a thousand temple prostitutes up and down the streets, a culture rampant with homosexuality, a people interested only in spectacular things, show me signs, a people that wanted some wonderful speech, some powerful rhetoric or flashy speech. What did Paul do when he entered that environment? Second Corinthians 2 tells us, when I came to you, brothers, did not, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He preached Christ. Why? Because Christ is the only hope for our lost and broken world. The world says, do something new. Do something entertaining. Do something popular. Do something trendy. Do something uh, political, but over and over, the scripture says, ministers, he calls ministers, proclaim him. Well, but this is why I believe what I believe and do what I do. It is the same mission. It has not changed. It is the same message. It has not changed. It is the same methodology, I think, that is taught over and over in the New Testament. I have no other vision. I have no other metric for success. I have no other plan uh, than that which has been given, which is to faithfully preach Christ, the whole Christ, the whole gospel, the whole counsel of Scripture. But that's not the ultimate goal. Notice seven, the seventh, the, the sum of ministry. And it's found at the end of verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Literally, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. What is the sum or the goal of ministry? It is the maturity of the saints. That's Paul's goal. Remember verse 22, he said, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, Paul, interestingly, verse 28, he sees his role as a minister and as, as, as his goal as a minister for this to happen. He proclaims Christ in order that the purpose of Christ's death might be fulfilled. You could say that the proclamation is for the purpose of presentation, to present everyone mature, perfect. In Christ. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, says he gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, all ministers of the word, he gave them 
for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ, so that we'll no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." God gave ministers of the word to the church, he says, to equip them for ministry and to make them mature in Christ. That's the sum of ministry. It isn't about growing a crowd. You know, I mean, we we could do that. We could give away cars, we could water down the message, we could make sinners feel comfortable, we can de-emphasize doctrine, we can do all kinds of things, but faithful ministry, notice he says, the goal of it is not about growing a crowd, it's about growing a church. It's about perfecting the saints, which is a much more difficult thing How do we do that? Well, we do it through faithful ministry of the Word, right? He's told us. How does this happen? Through the Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We preach the Word. We teach the Word. We're a Word-centered church. All of our children's ministries and student ministries, all the way through our senior adult ministries, we want to be word-centered. But we don't stop there either. We want to be word-centered people. We want to take the word in personally. How do we mature? How do you grow as a Christian? How do you grow in maturity? By getting this book into your life. Reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, living it out. Chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians, Paul reminds them that this was their beloved Epaphras' goal. Epaphras was the one that brought them the gospel. Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Here's why. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's the goal of every faithful minister. We preach Christ in order to present everyone mature, perfect in him. Which leads us to the final aspect, which is good because the chili is cooking. Amen. Number eight, the strength of ministry. The strength of it. Where does that come from? Paul answers that, verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's interesting. How does a minister he, he how does a minister appropriate this power? The the surprising answer that he gives is is that we receive this power to 
do these things, to serve these things, not so much by believing or faith. We receive the power by working. Right? For this I toil, struggling. The, the, the minister, he, he is saying here, the pattern that he's setting forth is to work hard at it. Toil is a word that means to labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. We, we might say that the ministry is no place for lazy shepherds. Presenting everyone mature in Christ takes work. How do we experience God's power in this? By working hard. I mean, there's no indication Paul was uh, immediately conscious of some kind of surging energy of God with, within him. He, there's no indication of that, but what he is very well aware of is the sweat on his brow and the scars on his body. And all that he knows is that when he works, and apparently as he works, that somehow God works in that. It's amazing, beautiful thought. It's a tremendous principle. Um, me illustrated from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just a couple of verses, verses 11 and through 13. Paul gives testimony there. He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Uh, verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. And, and so I'm asking a question, how do you know when God is working in you? Here's how Paul continues. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So if when you are reviled, you bless the person instead of curse them, and if you endure under persecution rather than give up and quit, and if when you are slandered, you respond by entreating rather than by doing evil back to that person, you can rest assured that divine energy is working in your life. Amen? I, I, again, Storms, Sam Storms writes this. He says, you probably won't feel anything. Like, like there's no guarantee that your body will, will vibrate or your appearance will somehow change. But, but here's what he says. If you find yourself, I think this is right. If you find yourself responding and thinking as Jesus would, if you find yourself acting and choosing contrary to every fleshly and selfish impulse in you, you may rest assured that divine energy is working in your life. It's fantastic. One more quote from MacArthur. He explains it like this. He says, these two parallel truths are a part of every great doctrine in Scripture. You must repent and believe to be saved, but it's the work of God. You must obey and worship to be sanctified, but it's the work of God. You must persevere to the end, but it's the Lord who secures you and holds you. 
We minister with all our energy and all of our might, but the power is God's. And we might add the glorious God's too, amen. It all goes to Him at the end of the day. And so you can be a lazy minister, a lazy Sunday school teacher, a lazy helper in the church, but you won't faithfully fulfill the ministry God has unless you labor in it. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Notice in that we've come full circle because the strength of ministry is the source of ministry who is is God. That's right. This is, by the way, the same thing. Oh, goodness. I'm running out. The same thing. The chili's going to burn. This is... This is the same thing. This is true of your walk with Christ. You, you remember this. I, I want to bring this up. We'll be done. Philippians 2, 12, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Some of you say, you want God to work in your life. I want God to work in my life, and yet you are not in his word regularly. You say you want God to work in your life. You're not praying in a regular, habitual way. You're not cultivating a prayer life. You want God to work in your life. You're not fighting your sin. You're not resisting your sin and pursuing holiness. There's no fear and trembling of the presence of your life. What Paul is saying, give yourselves to these things. As a minister gives himself to the proclamation of the word, give yourself to the word, give yourself to prayer, give yourself to the labor to the point of exhaustion, work out your salvation, for God will be working in you, he says. For those of you who are lost in your sins, please hear this. You cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot do enough good deeds. Your work today, if we call it that, is simply to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? To turn from your sins, humble yourself, ask God to save you and to come into your life and live. What are you waiting for? Do it right now. Cry out to Him. Ask Him to save you. Lord, thank You for Your Word this morning. Again, the clarity of it. We pray that You would help us, Lord, to hear it and then to be faithful and live it. And as we seek and strive to do that, Lord, we're so thankful that you promise to be working in us at the same time. So, Lord, lead us in these things. May we have ears to hear and then hearts that receive and, and then, Lord, hands and legs and minds that are willing to take these things and to live them for your glory. We pray for those today that do not know you that they have heard today the, the reason why we are here in the church is to proclaim this wonderful message of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Lord, may you give them ears to hear that they might believe and be saved. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.